First Timothy is where we're going to turn this morning. First Timothy chapter four. And if you would find with me verse number twelve, first Timothy chapter four and verse twelve. Let me read that to you. I'm just going to read that one verse. We've read the rest of the context surrounding it and I'll give us some more as we go. But let me read verse 12, 1 Timothy chapter 4. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. As we approach our Vision Sunday Church, I'm going to spend the next few weeks dealing with some specific topics uh, that the Lord has laid upon my heart. We're going to take a little bit of a break from our study in Philippians for just a little while, while we focus our attention on these particular subjects. Uh, I've read through 1 Timothy today intentionally because I believe it will set the scene for us for not just what we're looking at today and next week, but for a lot of February as well. I believe it's going to be an exciting year. I believe that the Lord has some uh, wonderful plans for us uh, today and in the weeks ahead. And uh, should the Lord tarry for this year. Uh, And as we go uh, over the next few weeks, I'm going to unveil a little bit more of uh, what I'm thinking. But particularly on Vision Sunday, this is all preparatory to where we head. Uh, So if you understand uh, what we're doing today, it's going to be built on and uh, Lord willing, unless... The Lord changes my mind on things. Uh, We've got a bit of a course over the next few weeks and I believe it'll be an exciting one. Here we have 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 12. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith and in purity. Someone rightly labeled the book of Timothy, the first Timothy, the first letter by the Apostle Paul as the New Testament church manual. You might have found that this morning when we read that. You might have found verses when we read through that. You thought, wow, there is so much here being dealt with about the church. Um, Rightly, someone called it the New Testament church manual. In fact, in chapter 3, if you just turn back a page perhaps in your Bible there, and verses 14 and 15, this is what Paul says to Timothy. I hope to come to see you soon, or I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay... You may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. There is the purpose statement for this book. This is how we need to behave in the church of Jesus Christ. This is how Paul says, I'm setting these things out so that you know what's going on. And we know Paul is the author of this letter and he is writing to his fellow labourer, his son in the faith, Timothy. And if you can stretch your memory back just about a month or so ago, we spent a long time looking at this person, Timothy. And you'll remember that Paul speaks very, very highly of Timothy. He is a disciple and a very, very close, intimate friend of the Apostle Paul's. In fact, it's 12 years ago or around about that Paul first encountered Timothy as a young man and he's followed him ever since. He's been following him all over the place through uh, wilderness places, through uh, ocean voyages, through preaching, through imprisonment. Uh, he's observed him being stoned. He's seen all kinds of things. But an interesting thing has taken place. And let me just quickly give you the history before we get right into the preaching this morning. About a decade earlier than where the Apostle Paul is now, Paul was passing through Miletus and he comes to a place where he calls for the Ephesian church elders in Acts chapter 20. And he pronounces a prophecy in Acts chapter 20, about 10 years earlier than where we are now. And he says to them, to the elders at Ephesus, that fierce wolves are going to enter into the flock and they are going to draw away the disciples. You might recall that passage in Acts chapter 20. Now, 10 years later, it has come true. Ephesus, the church at Ephesus is in dire straits. There are false teachers from within and from without that are are causing all sorts of problems within that local assembly. And though Timothy is young, Paul sends Timothy to Ephesus with mainly one purpose, and that is to expose the false teaching that had 
crept into the church and to set it into order. Get it back to where it needs to be. There are six clear divisions in the book of 1 Timothy. I want to quickly give them to you so that you know them because we will look at them again at some stage. In chapter 1, verses 3 to 20, Paul says to Timothy, I want you to instruct the church in sound doctrine. It's all about sound doctrine. Now, let me just say this if I may. Today, that is a taboo word in church. Church. Doctrine. Nobody wants to talk about doctrine and yet the Bible clearly tells us to Timothy, the pastor of that church in Ephesus, set the doctrine in order. Make sure there is clear teaching. Doctrine is just simply teaching. And the first clear division is that Timothy says in chapter 1 verses 3 to 20, make sure there's sound doctrine in the place. The second division is in chapter 2. If you want to look in chapter 2 verses 1 through 8, here Paul says to Timothy, I want you to be a praying church. I want you to be an intercessory church for kings and for all of those who are in high positions, etc., etc., in chapter 2 verses 1 through 8. Be a prayerful church. And don't we need prayer? Isn't the church in dire need of men and women praying? The third clear division seen in this book is in chapter 2 verses 9 through 15 and that is the divine order for women in the church. Again, another taboo subject today in church culture. Uh, Nobody wants to talk about the differences between the genders and God-ordained differences. Uh, Everybody wants to have what is known as equality, which we believe in, but most people want to get rid of diversity in service. And yet the Apostle Paul tells Timothy uh, that there is some things that are for men and some things that are for women, uh, and we need to understand those. That's the divine order for women in the church. The fourth division we see in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 13, and that is the qualifications of an elder and a deacon in the church. Now, very serious qualifications, uh, also something that today is overlooked in many leadership positions in church. The fifth thing we note is that In 1 Timothy 3 verses 14, right through to chapter 4 and verse 16, what is a good minister in a church? What is his conduct? Paul deals with the conduct of a good minister in the church. How should he operate? And then the final division in the uh, the book of 1 Timothy, again just to give you a bit of context, is the final chapter 5 verses 1 through to the end of chapter 6, is what the work of a good minister looks like. Sound doctrine in the church is needed, chapter 1. Intercession by the church is required and commanded in chapter 2. Divine order for women in the church in chapter 2. What the qualifications of bishops and deacons are in the church, chapter 3. Chapter 3 and uh, chapter 4, the conduct of a good minister. And then chapter 5 and chapter 6, the work of a good minister for the church. Some of you might say, We're not starting a new book, are we? Aren't we halfway through Philippians? We're not starting a new book. I'm just giving you some background here because we're going to spend a little bit of time in 1 Timothy over the course of the next probably couple of months. But today, chapter 4 and verse 12, we want to focus our attention on this one verse. I want to preach a message entitled, The Characteristics of a Model Christian. The Characteristics of a Model Christian. And I'm going to go right on ahead and put part one in brackets even though I'm not sure it was going to be, but I'm pretty sure it's going to be part one because I think there's going to be another part and we'll see where we end up today. Characteristics of a model Christian. Heavenly Father, as we would look at this text today, uh, Lord, I pray that you would help us to see much from it, uh, open our eyes, cause us to be illuminated to truth, we pray, uh, that we, each of us, would uh, model uh, what it is to be an example to others, uh, that we would be a pattern after the image of our Saviour. Lord, help us now in these few moments together, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let no one despise you for your youth, Paul says to Timothy, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith and in purity. The first thing I want you to notice this morning, age has nothing to do with exemplifying Christ. Let me say that again. Age has nothing to do with exemplifying Christ. What do I mean? I mean that age is not the 
a requirement, a certain age is not a requirement in order to serve the Lord faithfully and be an example of his. Let no one despise you for your youth. I used to wonder what this meant years and years ago at, uh, when I was uh, growing up and I would hear people preach on that. Let no one despise you for youth. I used to think, well, youth groups, 13 to 18, it must have been Timothy was, you know, somewhere in the teenage years. And uh, Paul says to him, well, don't, don't let anybody look down on you. But uh, as I grew in my understanding of the scriptures, it became very evident that's not at all what Paul was saying. Youthfulness in the culture in which uh, the Bible here has uh, been written and what uh, was happening at the time meant anywhere up to the age of 40 years of age. Now, I'm not going to say who's under 40 here because you're still youth or youthful. You don't have to You don't have to put your hand up, Caleb, but that's okay. Um, but here's, here's what this actually means, that in that particular day and age, to be youthful was to be someone who was under the age of 40 or thereabouts. By my calculations, and I don't know for sure, but I would suggest to you that Timothy was around about 33 years of age at this point. Uh, something like that, based on some other events and my calculations put together, somewhere around about 33 years of age. Interestingly enough, in the Jewish culture, nobody could enter the priesthood until they had reached 30. At 30, they could enter the priesthood if they were from the tribe of the Levites and they would spend 20 years in the service of a priest and then they would spend the next 20 years training the next generation. So from 30 to 50 was your only time as a priest in that day. But you couldn't enter until you were 30. That gives us a really interesting indication. Why do you think it was that the Lord Jesus began his public ministry at 30? I'll tell you why. He's not from the, he's not from the tribe of Levi He's from the tribe of Judah, but he fulfilled every aspect of the law. Nobody could ever say, you know, Jesus should not have begun his ministry yet. He fulfilled even that at the age of 30. He entered into his public ministry. In fact, we read uh, in Acts chapter 7 and verse 58, when Stephen was stoned, you remember that? That uh, his clothes were laid at the feet of a young man named Saul. The word young man, someone who is under 40, youth. Uh, Saul was a young man at that point. Paul says to Timothy, let no one despise you. Literally, don't let anyone disdain you or think less of you or little of you. Here is what Paul is not saying. By the way, I should say, this is not a message because I'm 31 and I want you all to think something of me. That's not the point of this text at all. In fact, I want to rapidly move through this first point. Okay, that's not the point. Paul is not saying this to Timothy. Paul is not saying, Timothy, what you need to do is go round to all the different people uh, at Ephesus there and explain why you are suitable for this job despite your age. Paul's not saying that. Paul is not saying, now you need to go around with your resume and you need to tell them all the things that we've done together. You've served with me and you've seen lots of things and you've encountered suffering and, and uh, all of your experiences have prepared you for this stuff. Paul is not saying that at all. Nor is Paul saying, don't let anybody speak evil of you or think of you in little terms. That's not what he's saying either. What he is saying is that by you living out the truths of what is in verse 12, nobody will despise you for your youth. You get the difference? He's not saying, don't let anybody despise you. When someone says something about you or you're too young or something, you say, no, I'm not. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, live a life that exemplifies Christ and people will not despise you for being young. Let your speech, let your conduct, let your love, let your faith, let your purity demonstrate that there is no reason why you are too young to lead the church at Ephesus. Here's the important principle, church, for us by way of application. Spiritual leadership in any sense, whether it be ecclesiastical church or as a husband or as a, a father or whatever area of leadership God gives to you, is not based upon a person's age, but rather a proven life of godliness. We get that? See, here's what happens. I've been in church cir- circles where people place a great emphasis on life experience or a great emphasis on education and all the letters after someone's name, or their success stories. Well, you know, I led so many crusades, or I ran so many camps, or I saw so many people say, and those success stories suddenly become the resume and the reason why that person is suitable for any realm in the spiritual sense. Whereas that's not what the prerequisite in the Scripture is. 
The prerequisite in the scripture is not how many Bible college courses have you done? That's not it. It's not what are your success stories? It's not how much have you done? It's not how old are you? It is just simply that you are living a life that is an example in all areas of Jesus Christ. That is the prerequisite for spiritual service. Churches do not need CEOs. They need servants. We do not need pastors with marketing degrees, but those who are committed to Christ-likeness. Too many church leaders are trying to be cool dudes when God demands us to be insignificant so that Christ might be preeminent. It's never been about your age. It's never been about racial background or socioeconomic status. It is always this question. Am I like Christ? Does my life reflect the glory of God or am I self-serving? Am I controlled predominantly by my flesh or by the Spirit? Those are the questions we need to ask, not just of our own church leadership here, but of our own selves, every one of us. Is this a reality in our life? Do I meet the criteria of being one who is walking in Christ-likeness day by day, being led by the Spirit, or am I simply here for myself? Age has nothing to do with service. In verse 12, I want you to see our second point. Paul says, let no one despise you for your youth, but contrast, set the believers an example. The second thing I want you to note is the importance of setting an example. And I believe it's at this point that we can broaden our understanding of this direct passage of scripture this is not only although it is predominantly for the pastor the elder the leader in the church but i believe that we can expand that for every single person who is a christian set every believer an example it's everybody's responsibilities but far more so for the ones who are in spiritual leadership in the church let no one despise you for your youth but set the believers an example here's what that literally means to set the believers an example make an impression, model for imitation, be a sampler or pattern for others to follow. Let me say this to us this morning. Example setting is at the very core of the gospel. Example setting is at the very core and heart of the gospel. You say, how is that so? When God wanted to pattern or make a model for us to follow, he sent his son as the great example. And we have a number of sub points to consider this morning here. And the first is Christ is our great example. God was revealed to us in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate example the one to whom we all must conform. There's a number of texts, we won't turn there, but let me read them to you. John 13, verse 15, Jesus says, For I I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Speaking of when the Lord Jesus knelt down and washed the disciples' feet. You remember that account. In 1 Peter 2, verse 21, one of the apostles that were with the Lord Jesus said this, For to this you have been called, Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his footsteps. The late oldest apostle, 1 John chapter 2 and verse 6, he writes, Whoever says he abides in Christ ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Christ is our great example. Now, some of us might say, well, this this is very basic. We know this to be a reality. Well, the question must be then, am I walking in that example? Am I leading a life that is following in that example? See, the very simplistic reality of the Christian life is that I'm to be like Christ. If someone says to you, what's the point of your Christian life? Very simple, to be conformed to the image of the Son of God. That's it, full stop. Everything else comes together in this climactic truth that I am to be like Christ that those would mistake me for being one of his disciples. You have been with him too. Yea, I have been with him. And I am like him. Ought to be the testimony of every Christian. But we see also not only is Christ our great example, our second sub-point here, is that the apostles, 
And the New Testament leaders are our examples. The Bible demonstrates on many occasions the importance of walking with the wise, following in the steps of the faithful and imitating the lives of those who are godly. Imagine being able to say this. The Apostle Paul in Philippians 3 verse 17 says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. That's a powerful statement, isn't it? Imitate me, church, is what Paul says. In Philippians 4 and verse 9, he says, What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul again says, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Wow, that is a powerful statement for someone to be able to say. I I, I would dare not say that in my own Christian experience to you. Be an imitator of me as I am an imitator of Christ because I know in myself that so often I am a bad imitation. I'm a bad mimic of Jesus Christ. And Paul says, follow me. Look at me and follow me because I'm going the same way. Wow, that is a powerful statement. Can you say that? The third thing we note in the scriptures dealing with examples And this is a hard one for me and probably Terry as he considers it. Church leaders are to be examples. The Bible tells us in 1 Peter 5 verses 2 to 3, Peter says to the elder, the pastor, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, which is so easy, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, not for money, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. That is very penetrating and hard-hitting for me as I have been away and wondered about whether I am being an example as I ought to be to the flock. The author of Hebrews says in chapter 13 and verse 7, remember your leaders. Those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Hopefully for a moment you can put yourself in the shoes of one in spiritual leadership and see the weight of that, that I might say to you and that Terry might say to you, imitate my faith. Wow. I know my faith is pretty fragile at times. I know that I'm often not a very good example. That's a, that's a hard thing to say. And yet, church leaders are to be examples. Titus, Paul writes to Titus, another uh, a pastor, one who's setting up elders in uh, the Isle of Crete there. He says in verse 7 and 8, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. Church leaders are to be models of good works. They're to be examples to the flock. They're those whose faith you ought to be able to imitate. And at this point I say, only by the grace of God is that a possibility. But I'm thankful there's another subpoint here which includes all of you, not just me. We notice also in being an example that the Bible tells us that all Christians are to be examples. In fact, the very purpose of your salvation is not for yourself, but in the fact that God would be glorified by you exemplifying a life that honours Him. First Thessalonians in chapter 1 Verses 6 to 8 again. We don't have time to turn there, but it is an incredible portion of Scripture. Please listen as I read this. Paul says to the church at Thessalonica, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, But your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we have need to say nothing. What a testimony. What an example of a church. Paul goes to different places and he doesn't need to say a word about the gospel because the Thessalonians have already been here. They've already had an example in these great places. The Lord Jesus said in John 13, 35, By this shall all people know that you are my disciples if you have love. One for another. First Peter 2 and verse 9, Peter writes, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, that you should show forth the praises of Him who hath called you out of darkness into His light. You are to be an example. You are to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus Christ to all. 
You say, well, what's the practical application here? This is it. In everything, supremely, we are to mimic the life of our Saviour. Now, if we're not careful, a truth like that will just go straight past us. Another interesting point, maybe. Just let that sink in from a, in every aspect of my life, I am to mimic, I am to be a pattern of Jesus Christ. And then, secondly, I'm to follow the examples of those in Scripture and those in history and those in our own church leadership who have been called and are setting forth a life of godliness and holiness. And then I'm to seek as they walk. I'm to walk as they walk. I'm to seek to live a life that would be the same as theirs. We, we follow Christ supremely and then we mark those who are walking in accordance with the Word and we, and we say, I want to be like that person, not because we're comparing ourselves, but because they're walking like Christ. That's the responsibility And then we are to set an example to others. But the main thrust of the message in this particular passage in verse 12, if you would look with me again there. Let no one despise you for your youth, Timothy, Paul says, but set the believers an example. And then notice what he says in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith. And impurity. The third thing that I want us to see this morning, which we will only get through part of it, is the characteristics of a godly example. What does a godly example look like? Paul says to Timothy, this is how I want you to be so that others would not despise your youth, so that others would not think that you are unworthy of the task to which you've been called. You need to have these aspects in your life. And I want to suggest to you that in this passage, Paul lists five very specific attributes which together produce a life that exemplifies Christ. We're going to take a few moments to briefly touch on these and wherever we finish, we'll pick up from next week. The first thing we note here in speech. I think I know why the Apostle Paul chose this one first by inspiration of the Holy Spirit because this one, this is tough. This one is a hard one. And uh, as much as I have tried to uh, squeeze out of the meaning, the Greek word, uh, the Apostle Paul, the Holy Spirit has given to us such a wonderful uh, word here that it encapsulates everything. We can't, there's no, we can't escape this any way we try. doesn't matter what Greek lexicon you pick up. It deals with every expression that comes from us. You can't get away from it. It's not only what is said. It is how it is said. It is why it is said and it's even when it is said. Let me say that again. This speech deals not only with what is said. That would be good. I'll just keep my mouth shut. What is said. It's not just what is said, but how it is said. Why, motive, why it is said and even when it is said. We know from scripture passages, this is just reminders for us, the tongue cannot be tamed, the Bible says. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. That's a, uh, some might say, a fairly dramatic way to describe the tongue, but yet James makes it clear that this is an untamable beast. In fact, the Lord Jesus furthermore said that what is uttered by the tongue defiles the man. He says, it's not what goes in, but what comes out of the man that defiles him. And it gives us an insight into the heart. You remember that text there in Luke 6.45 where the Lord Jesus says that out of the heart, the mouth speaks. See, the problem isn't really the mouth. The problem is really what goes beneath that, which is the root of the problem, which is always the heart. Which is why Solomon says, keep your heart, guard your heart with all diligence for out of it flow the issues of life. Let's talk about speech for a few minutes. It's always an encouraging subject, this one, Uh, unless you have a problem with your tongue, which we all do. Perverse speech originates in our sinful flesh. But you know what, believers, we don't have an excuse. And here's why. The believer is no longer bound by the flesh. 
Perverse speaks, speech comes from the flesh, but we are no longer bound by the flesh. Victory over our tongues is possible through the gospel, as is every other vice and every other sin. I always find it interesting when I hear of people saying, I'm not, I'm not having a go at this, but I always find it interesting when people have a go at unsaved people and try to correct their speech. They try and uh, fix the problems. But the reality of it is you cannot fix the problem of speech without a cure for the heart. Uh, in fact, it was an interesting situation this morning, and I hope this recording doesn't go to this person, but I went across the road and I got myself a coffee early this morning and uh, I, I've been engaging in good conversations over there with the staff. And one particular person in the staff over there said, man, you get here early on a Sunday. I said, well, I like to get a bit prepared. It was about six o'clock this morning or something. And um, I got my coffee and she said, well, what do you do over there? I said, well, I, I read and I pray and I get ready for the day. And, and how many people come? And we were just talking about general things. And... Um, and I mentioned that I hadn't had a lot of sleep last night uh, because there was things that I was doing, but also because this morning I wanted to do some more preparation. And uh, her response to me talking about the Word of God and being up early was that classic term, oh my God, followed by Jesus Christ. That is unbelievable. Now, I immediately thought, because I'm thinking about the text that I'm preaching and I'm thinking about speech and I'm thinking about what I'm going to share with you, and I thought... The irony of that statement just went straight past that lady. She didn't even, we were just talking about God. And yet the very next words that came out of her mouth were words of blasphemy towards the very God and his son that I had just spoken about, but it didn't even, there wasn't even a, oh, I'm so sorry. You know how some people say, oh, I'm so sorry, I didn't mean, that didn't even happen. It just reminded me again, the unregenerate person, why would they have a change in their perverse lips? They have a perverse heart. Now, I'm not saying that we can't go and say, you know, hey, listen, would you mind not saying that word around that? But what I'm saying is that sometimes we're putting bandages on corpses. That's what we're trying to do. We don't need to try and fix the language of the person. We need to give them Christ. But Christian, we have no excuse. We have no excuse for perverse speech. I have no excuse for speech that is not honourable to the Lord because in Christ I have the victory over the tongue because he's given me a new heart. And so for me to say I can't get my speech right is to say the power of the gospel is not sufficient in this area of my life. And so we cannot use that argument. Next few moments before I finish, I just want to give you a quick synopsis of what the Bible says about speech. And it says a lot, and I'm not including all of them. But here's 15 quick things. Ephesians 4.29 says this. I'm not reading you the text, but reading you the principle found in the text. Our mouths should only utter that which builds up and is fitting for the occasion. Do you know what the word modesty means? You know, we talk about modesty and we talk about people need to dress modestly and that sort of thing. The word modesty just simply means fit for the occasion. It's not about how long the skirt is necessarily. It's about whether it is fitting to the occasion and suitable attire for what's being done or whatever the occasion may be. The Bible talks about our speech being modest, suitable to the occasion, right, fitting, Our mouths should only utter that which builds up and fits the occasion. Colossians chapter 4 and verse 6, Proverbs 16, 24 remind us secondly that our speech must always be gracious. When I was studying this out, I was amazed at how many times the word always appears in the Bible when it relates to speech. Always build up, always be gracious. And uh, unfortunately for me, that always doesn't mean sometimes. It means always, constantly, all 100% of the time is what always means. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 4, thirdly, there is to be no filthiness or crude joking, but instead thanksgiving. If you struggle with uh, saying things that are inappropriate, sexual innuendos, crude joking... The Bible says that we ought not to do that, but instead offer thanksgiving as Christians. The fourth thing we note in Psalm 141 verse 3 and James 1.26 is that our speech is to be carefully guarded and bridled. 
And following from that, fifthly, Matthew 12, 36 says that idle and careless words will result in judgment. Be careful what you say. Be careful what your idle and careless words will do. They will incur or bring about judgment. Number six, be careful what you promise and ensure you keep your word. Ecclesiastes 5, 2 to 4 says, I have met many a person who says, I will do this, I will do that, and yet their yea is not yea and their nay is not nay. God says that's not appropriate. Your speech needs to be. You say that, you make a promise, you need to fulfill that. Number seven, we need to be slow to speak, which ensures wise words. James 1 verse 19, Proverbs 17, 27. Proverbs 15, 28 tells us that we need to be slow to speak. We are sometimes very rash with our mouths, are we not? I know I am. I I have been... Uh, I have been given a mind that is fairly quick and I know that I have the ability to be witty and sometimes when I find in my own life that there is a circumstance where I have not thought, I usually say something that is stupid. That's usually what happens in my own life because because of the way that God has, maybe not his fault, but the way that my brain operates, I'm quick to the punchline. But if I'm not careful, I find in my own life that if I do not guard against that, I will often say that which is inappropriate, unhelpful or not building up because of the way it is. And some of you may be in the same situation and we must be very careful to be slow to speak. Number eight, irreverent babble will lead people to a place of ungodliness. Don't be irreverent. Don't take that which is holy and throw it to the pigs. And many a person does that. Many a Christian does that. When it comes to that which is holy, that which is sacred, we go and pollute by our own fleshly, filthy lusts and desires. Second Timothy 2.16 tells us not to do that. Number nine, speaking too much results in transgression. Proverbs 10.19 and Ecclesiastes 10.14. There is a sin of speaking too much. We might joke about it at times, but the reality of it is the Bible makes it very clear that we are not to speak too much. We're not to engage in constant speech and and be the centre of everyone's attention and always have something to say. That's not biblical. It's not right. We need to guard our tongues and our lips so that that is not something that happens as we seek to be an example to the believers. Number 10, the lips of the righteous utter truth and not lies, Ephesians 4.15. It may be that there are those in our midst who really wrestle with telling the truth. You know, our God is a God of truth. If we're going to be conformed to His image, we will speak the truth. In fact, Ephesians tells us, let the one who used to lie not lie anymore. The one who used to steal no longer steal. We need to not be what our old self used to be. We're created anew. And so we want to speak the truth. God is light. We want to move towards that light so that everything is transparent and clear. There is no room for a falsehood in the life of a Christian. Number 11, the right words for the right occasion bring joy and are very precious in the positive. Proverbs 25, 11 to 12. Did you know that a word spoken in the right context, the right way, the Bible talks about it being like gold, like gold. It is precious, it is pertinent to the occasion and it has a fruitful effect if we will, before perhaps we quickly, rashly speak, ask the Lord to give us the wisdom when we deal with others, we will find that it will be precious words, right words. Number 12, Leviticus 19 verse 16 and a myriad of other passages, slander dishonours the Lord. I am convinced that slander is the number one problem in church splits. I am convinced of it. I'm convinced that when there starts to be whispering and murmurings and when that turns into slandering and we start uh, assassinating one another's character, it's not long before the church is divided and the whole thing goes down and God is dishonoured. God hates a slandering tongue. God help us never to slander one another. When there are problems that we would, with our lips, approach people in grace and love and seek to uh, clarify circumstances, seek forgiveness and so on. Number 13, Philippians 2.14 says, do not grumble. And you know what's interesting? Is sometimes we think we've obeyed the command to not grumble when we just do it internally. 
Sometimes we think, well, I didn't say it out loud. It's a little bit like that little boy in church where mum says to the little boy, I want you to sit down. And he says, no. And mum says, I want you to sit down. And he finally sits down and he turns to his mum and he says, I might be sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside. (laughs) You know, that's us. We do that. We grumble internally. We we think that uh, we get away with it because we didn't let it out. I thought evil thoughts of you or I didn't like that situation and it invaded my mind, but I didn't stop it there. I let it prolong and sooner or later our attitude changes and our face disfigures and we're just a grouch to be around after a while. We ought not to grumble in any sense. Any expression of grumbling internal or external is wrong. Number 14, this is one you don't hear of very often. Proverbs 11, 13, do not reveal the secrets of another. Ever been around people who, you know, you've told them something confidential or you've been in a group and you just heard what you told someone two weeks ago and just came back and think, how that, that was, that was, that was close to my heart. I was sharing that. I was knitting my heart with that person and that intimacy they have just totally broken. And what does that do for a friendship? What does that do for the family of Jesus Christ? We say, well, I'm not trusting them. They're untrustworthy. I'm not having anything to do with that person anymore. God says, don't utter the promises of someone that you've promised to anybody else. Very important. Number 15, the last one in this list. About our speech. A spirit-filled life is identified by lips that speak or sing psalms, hymns and spiritual songs offering thanksgiving to the Lord. Let Let me tell you that one way that you will know whether you are walking in the spirit is this. Do I speak to myself in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs? Do I offer thanksgiving to the Lord? Because you know what? And I think it's interesting, speaking to yourself. See, sometimes I, I might be able to fool you. I'll come into a room, maybe I'm whistling a hymn and, you know, in my heart it's the darkest place in the world. But yet, when it's myself, I don't want to sing hymns if I'm not walking with the Lord. I don't want to offer thanksgiving to the Lord if, I, if, if I'm not walking with Him, but when I am, it's the natural language of the Christian to offer to Him praise in speech, in song, and, and it doesn't matter whether you can hold a key, the Lord doesn't mind. Spirit-filled life is evidenced by our speaking to ourself in psalms, hymns and spiritual songs and thanksgiving towards the Lord. Church, our speech is an integral aspect of our testimony an example to one another. Let me ask you this, does your speech, in all of those 15 areas, and there's far more that I could have used this morning, does it exemplify Christ? Is it an example? If it's not, why not? He's given us the victory. It's got to be my fault. It's not that there's no power. It's that I'm not walking in it. I'm certainly not going to get through what's before me here, but I just want to cover one more area and then we'll close here in first timothy chapter 4 and verse 12 paul says don't despise timothy for his youth but set the believers an example in speech and in conduct let me just couple these two together and close us off by looking at this matter of conduct just simply means behavior it's the manner of life it's how we live this is not what we say but how we operate from day to day I believe that we can sum this whole subject up of conduct by looking at 1 Corinthians 10.31. If you'd turn there really quickly with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 31, I believe is probably the greatest treatment of this subject of what we do with our lives and conduct. 1 Corinthians 10.31, probably very well known. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all... To the glory of God. No exceptions, no exclusions, no what about this or what about that or I didn't understand this or ignorance. Do all to the glory of God. Whether you are eating, whether you are drinking or whatever you are doing, it is to be done for the glory of God. Dealing with our conduct. In other words, let me summarize it this way. Everything you do, every engagement, every duty, Every practicality, every toil, every labour, every activity is to be done with one thing in mind, God's supreme glory. You may be surprised to learn if you've not heard this before, 
that the word glory simply means to give the right opinion of someone else. Let me say that again. Glory is to give the right opinion of someone else. We seem to interchange glory with heaven and praise and I'm going to glory one day or I'm going to give glory to God. We think that, but the true definition of glory is to give the right opinion of. So, well, what does that mean? That means that in my life, when I do something, it ought to exemplify the character of God. So, for example, when I go to work and I am labouring, it ought to be that people would say, whatsoever he does, he does to the glory of God. Oh, look, he is a hard-working man because he honours God and I'm not his boss. Obviously, he has a greater boss than me. That exemplifies God. That points to the character of God. When I'm speaking to people, when I'm dealing with circumstances, people ought to say, that speech is seasoned with salt, it's gracious. It's, it's like what I read about Jesus in the New Testament. It's the way he dealt with sinners. It's compassionate, it's loving, it's forgiving. It's to do all to the glory of God. Let me just, uh, let me summarise this by with some applications here for us. And by no means is this all inclusive, but this is what we should be thinking about perhaps when we deal with what we do, conduct, setting an example. The way we work for our employer, just mention that. We ought to be hard working. We ought to be honouring the Lord with what we do. Another one would be the modesty of our apparel. I have occasion to talk uh, with various young people and have for many years about modesty in, as it relates to the apparel, what we wear. And a lot of people say, well, you know what, you ought to wear certain types of clothing so that you don't cause another brother or sister to stumble. That's true. We read that in Romans chapter 14, don't let your, don't do anything that's going to cause your brother to stumble. That's not the primary reason. That's not the primary reason we dress modestly. The primary reason we dress modestly is because we want to honour the Lord. It's because we want to glorify Him. We don't want people looking at us. We want people looking at Him. We want people going, wow, what a great God. And you obviously love that God because you honour Him in every area of your life, including the realm of clothing. I don't look at you and and think about you. I look at you and think, wow, that is a a beautifully dressed individual and that gives honour and glory to the Lord. As opposed to that just takes my distraction, that turns me away from how I ought to be living. It doesn't give glory to God. So let me encourage you, ladies and gentlemen, as you consider what you wear, simply ask this question. Is what I am wearing going to point people to the glory of God? Is it going to esteem his character higher than me? If it isn't, then maybe we're in the wrong thing. Maybe we need to change our wardrobe. A third thought for us, as it relates to God's glory in deeds, the organisation of our lives. This is a hard one. Some people don't want to talk about organisation. Did you know that a disorganised life does not bring glory to God? Disorganisation and a a lack of discipline in that realm is that which does not honour the Lord at all. And people look at that life and they do not say, that is exemplary, that example is exactly what I see in the Lord Jesus. You say, why should I be organised? Very simply, God is a God of decency and order, 1 Corinthians chapter 14 says. Why should I be organised? Not because it's easier, it is. Not because, well, you know what, I should because other people are coming over to my house, you know, so I better make sure everything looks good. That's not why we clean up, or it shouldn't be. It ought to be because my God is a God of decency and in order, and I ought to be the same. Gives God glory. Management of our own finances. That ought to be that which glorifies the Lord. As you know, some of you, I took some time off last year for that very purpose because my life was not glorifying the Lord. And as best I know, I believe it is honouring to the Lord now. Managing that which God has dispensed to us is part of giving glory to God in our conduct, in what we do. Paying our bills on time, honouring the tax laws, doing all of those things are part of what we do as we honour and glorify the Lord. Just three more for our consideration. There are so many more, but we'll leave it there. The manner in which we discipline our children or address our spouse. That's a matter of glory. That's not just a matter of relationship. That's not just human interaction. That's a matter of glory. How I discipline my children. The Bible says, provoke not your children to wrath. Don't discipline them in anger. Don't cause them to be angry with you. Do it in love. Do it in a way that would honour the Lord. I am doing this for the glory of God. When He disciplines us, He doesn't do it with anger. 
When he disciplines us, he doesn't stand there and beat us with a rod in such a way that we uh, feel that he is uh, frustrated and angry with us. He does it for our good and for his own glory. We ought to operate the same way. When we speak to our wife, when we speak to our husbands, we need to do it in such a way that honours the Lord because that's how he interacts with us. How you operate in the church ministries that God has given to you. What you supervise, your own families, church ministries around here, all of those are to be God's, to God's glory. The last thing to just note, and people don't want to talk about this one much either, is the entertainment we enjoy. Now, I am not one of these preachers who says, right, that's it, you need to get rid of your television, you need to get rid of your your movies, you need to throw out all your CDs, you just need to spend all your time in the Bible. That's all you should do with all of your life. Just read the Bible. Kids are going everywhere, don't worry, just read your Bible. Now, that's not... That's not, that's not what the Bible says for a start. Entertainment, uh, pleasure, uh, recreation is all in Scripture and we ought to have that, but we must do it for the glory of God. Because you know what that little word all means? All. All to the glory of God. And I can enjoy recreation and yet it still be honouring to the Lord. Most pastors that I have heard over the years make it sound like any kind of recreation, any kind of uh, relaxation, any kind of fun is evil. That is so wrong. And you need to understand, that is wrong. But there is a wrong in us entertainment, in the entertainment that we do at times. And we need to be careful about that. So we set an example to the believers in the realm of conduct. This is what we say as we close. If I'm going to set an example in speech and conduct, this is what I'm going to say. Do what I'm doing. Do it in the manner in which I do it because it glorifies Christ. Wow, can you say that? Can you unravel your life before each one of us today and say, hey, just do what I do. Say what I say. Live the life that I live because what I'm doing is honouring the Lord. I'm setting an example. Uh, Truly, this is a huge conviction to me and I hope it is to you. Next week, we're going to look at what it is to be an example in love, to be an example in faith and what it is to be an example in purity. So we might have nobody here next week. We'll see how we go. We're going to look at that next week. I'm going to close in prayer and then after that, I want to sing a closing song as a special item of music before we finish. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for that which we've looked at. Uh, Lord, we have laboured long in uh, this particular verse, but it is so pregnant with truth. Uh, There is so much in it for us to consider and to apply. Uh, And Lord, I I confess before these, my my friends, my brothers and sisters, that uh, so often I fail in these areas and uh, yet you have called me specifically to be an example in all of these things and in the direct context of this passage it is for those in leadership but also for everyone and so lord help uh, mount cathedral community baptist church to be a place where each one is an example to another in all of these things these five distinctives these five characteristics uh, of the model christian help us we pray in jesus name amen